Writing about crime contains themes and subjects that some may find upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Jesse Brown, host of the popular podcast Canada Land, an independent journalist, was contacted by one of the women claiming to have experienced an assault at the hands of Gianco Meshi. He felt the serious allegations were believable and his source was reliable. He also felt that it was realistic to believe that many others were involved. There was a story there. However, Jesse wanted to collaborate with the Toronto Star in order to bring the story forward. And through an initial interview and frank conversation with one anonymous source, Kevin Donovan was put on the story with Jesse Brown. Kevin later would author the book, Secret Life, The Giango Meshi Investigation. It highlighted the tremendous investigation that was going on behind the scenes long before it reached the ears of Toronto police, much less the Toronto Star readership. In the book, Kevin Donovan claims that only four complainants were dealt with in court, but he had heard accounts from 17 women and two men that all claimed to some degree to have experienced sexually inappropriate behavior at the hands of Jean Gomeshi. Initially, in his own investigation along with Jesse Brown, they ran into three main problematic points. One, most of the victims preferred to remain anonymous and spoke only under agreement of confidentiality. Two, some of the victims, while having very compelling accounts of their experience and appeared quite genuine, had already deleted most texts and emails that could be used to support their claims. Third, many victims did not like having to prove their claims during interviews with Donovan and Brown. When asked to verify their accounts in some way or to provide elements or details, some would become angry. They were offended at not just being believed. Kevin was using his contacts at the CBC to verify if anyone serving as a veteran host on the broadcast could give him any insight as to previous knowledge or grumblings about Gomeshi around the offices. One contact, Anna Maria Tremonti, the host of CBC's The Current, was considered a seasoned and very trustworthy host for the broadcaster. When approached by Kevin, she was shocked at the allegations being mentioned about Gomeshi but she encouraged Kevin to keep investigating, saying, I think you have to. Jesse Brown, however, had no second guesses. He worked at the CBC and had been privy to accounts of this kind over the years. The first lady Jesse brought forward to tell her story to Kevin was named with the pseudonym Carly. Carly claimed she met Chian at a book signing and he messaged her on Facebook. Eventually, that led to direct text messaging and finally in-person meetups and sexual exchanges. The first time, 
He slapped her repeatedly on the head during oral sex. She then claimed he put his belt around her neck and walked her like a dog around the room. As he did, he called her a dirty whore. After that first exchange, Carly felt somehow he had got the wrong idea about her and what she was up for. She tried to change the direction of the conversation after to a subject that she thought he would enjoy, himself. That did not go over well. Her account was that he became indignant with her when she asked any questions where the answer could be found in his already released memoir, claiming, didn't you read the book? The next person to speak up anonymously was Paula. She was interviewed by Jesse and Kevin at her workplace. Kevin was struck by how tiny and petite she was. He noted that Carly was also quite a small girl. Perhaps, he questioned, Jean was attracted to small ladies that were easier for him to control. That is possible. But I'm inclined to think that he may have had a preference for petite ladies, but that it was just a bonus that he could overpower them a bit easier. I do think it's more likely he would look for a type that he could control psychologically if the allegations about him all had proved true. From meeting with Paula, it was determined that there was usually overlap in Gomeshi's relationships, Carly and Paula being an example of that. Interestingly, Paula recalled that Jian had told her that she was the one he wanted to settle down with and be married to during a phone call. Later that evening when she arrived, they began kissing and he grabbed her hair and jerked her head back and began hitting her. First with an open hand and then with a closed fist. She claimed he choked her and struck her and then she claimed he accused her of liking it. The sudden violence was shocking. There are other details, but I think you are seeing the commonality in the events across the board, and it's rather disturbing to go into. The interesting thing to note is that Paula claimed that after the assault, Jean told her that if she wanted to make an honest go of it with him, she would have to give in to him sexually, saying, you have to let me enjoy this the way I want. He went on later to call her a disparaging name. And when Paula protested loudly, he sleeked away from her immediately saying, now you're making me feel like a creep or some kind of weirdo. He went on to tell her, you need to go. He then walked away and sat on his couch, focusing on his phone until she left. She cited similar reasons for not contacting authorities that Carly did. She did not feel that she had been raped. She didn't think anyone would believe her and she wanted to avoid being caught up in the embarrassment. Paula did continue to see Jean occasionally. However, they were never intimate again, according to what she told the reporter. Her contact with Jean had basically come to a close in March of 2014. Not too long after that, Carly had spotted Paula's name and phone number on Jean's phone while he was in the shower and she decided to contact Paula. Carly told Paula that she had inquired with Jean if other women he dated were okay with the choking and punching, to which Jean had responded that no, all of them, including Paula, had enjoyed it. 
that enraged Paula enough to send Jian email berating him. It gave the reporter a sense of how Paula's anger had developed between when she had split with Jian and the time she had spoken with Carly. Their discussion gave him enough insight to realize that Paula was probably the mystery lady who had created the at Big Ears Teddy Twitter account and that Carly had helped her along. They both had pointed fingers at one another over time, but it was clear it was a joint effort. Paula admitted she was involved that day when she was pressed, but later she denied being the author of any of the tweets. Both Carly and Paula said that no toys or safe words were introduced into their relationship with Jia. Although, at one time, when Carly expressed she didn't like the hitting, he had said perhaps safe words may be a good idea, but that never happened. It seemed that it was a tool that he used to get her to continue on with the encounters. He was not sincere. Then, almost in an act of foreshadowing ahead many years, when she was asked to clarify the details of the belt being used as a collar, her tone changed. And although she was absolutely certain of every aspect of her claims, this one detail she said was hazy, claiming she was pretty sure it happened. So here we are at this impasse again. Carly and Paula are giving strong accounts of being sexually assaulted, and it certainly sounds to me that they were. So what is the law in Canada on consent and being hurt during sex? Well, it goes something like this. You cannot hurt someone without consent unless it serves a social purpose. This would be a situation such as during a sports event or other approved purposes. Legal decisions for BDSM cases are always in flux. This made it hard to determine if the complaints would stand in court early in the investigation. Another issue, no documentary evidence. Paula and Carly did not report to the police or retain any emails or text messages that would be of use. Both wanted to remain anonymous in the press, fearing retribution particularly Paula. Even if the accounts led to a trial, she indicated she would not be willing to participate. For Kevin Donovan, this was a problem for his investigation because Carly was willing, should the police be involved and eventually charges are laid to support her claims in court. Donovan's concern was one bettered in past experience, his own and his colleagues. One may cooperate fully in the interviews with reporters and under agreement of confidentiality. But when things start moving forward in serious criminal investigations, it's not unheard of for some claimants to turn fully on their word. He was concerned that once police were involved, one or both of the ladies would change their tune and claim that Jian was a gentle lover. In a moment of caution and full coverage, he was sure to mention that if they had lied and went on publicly to claim that Gomeshi did not abuse them, he would consider this a violation of source to reporter contract. 
You cannot go anonymously to the press making false defamatory claims about someone and leave the report to open public and legal risks. Their claims would be vetted. This was top of mind for many in the printed media business as there was a serious issue with this very same situation in the American press around that time. Rolling Stone magazine had published a firecracker of a story called A Rape on Campus, detailing a young girl's account of being gang raped by seven men at a Virginia University frat party. The story was devastating, and to add to it, the university appeared to handle the situation very poorly, if at all. It raised quite an outpour of online reactions and demonstrations on the campus. Unfortunately, when the Washington Post was prompted to look into the lady's allegations, they uncovered information that raised doubts on her claims. Later, a police investigation revealed that her accusations were fabricated. Kevin Donovan and his superiors would be sure to use every available resource to verify any claims that were made against Gianco Meshi before they would go to press. The hard fact was the ladies didn't have much to fear in terms of costly legal battles. It was the Toronto Star that would face litigation in the event that Gian decided to sue anyone for providing false information to the public. Jesse Brown was less concerned. He had worked at the CBC and was around to hear all of the comments and innuendos that swirled around Gian, including direct accounts of harassment. Q had a heavy turnover of producers and one by the name of Catherine Burrell confided to Jesse that Gian had made a very offensive comment to her and then, while both were fully clothed, assaulted her in an office. A third woman came forward to speak to Carly. She went under the moniker, Molly. Her experience overlapped the previous two that Jesse and Kevin had met with. Again, at a book signing event, she had met Gian and they became Facebook friends. Later, she received a message with his direct phone number. They continued to engage online and soon he involved some violent sexualized language into their chats. He did, however, make it clear that this was all fantasy. Later, when she visited Toronto and met with him, she was stunned when he suddenly attacked her in a stairwell. He made her kneel down and began to strike her in the head, telling her, I know how to hit there so there won't be bruises. When she emailed him later saying he had abused her, he responded quickly stating, it's about sex. That you've decided to turn this ugly is disappointing. I wish you good karma for 2013. Molly's experience overlapped the other two girls' timeline as well. As Kevin Donovan continued to reach out for more information, Carly created a Facebook page for women who had bad experiences with Xi'an in the past as well. It was surprising that some were mad and offended at the page being created. Some accused her of creating a smear campaign. Kevin also came to realize that some of the women he contacted had told Xi'an about it. 
One who defended him later apologized, saying, I was seduced by his charm. She said she regretted contributing to the resistance by believing Jean. As Kevin Donovan's research continued, and he continued meeting with Carly, he began to start wondering if it was maybe time to go to Gomeshi for comment. He did have concern about a couple of issues, though. The first being the optics of Carly's situation. He acknowledged that it was common for women to be caught in abusive relationships where the couple share a home. There's a financial dependability, children are involved, or some other form of dependency. Yet, in Carly's case, this was going to involve some elaborating because geographically, there was quite a distance between them. She lived in a secure home and she was still flirtatious with Xi'an until the end of the relationship. In fact, at one point she admitted that for a certain while she began to enjoy the violence. That Carly had stayed with him for so long was presenting difficulty. It would support the story to find women who were assaulted and then walked away completely from the situation, disengaging from Jean. Another consideration was that the story was indeed sensational, but it was not legal to present news that's not backed up by proper claims or doesn't serve to be compelling public interest. In Canada, this is called responsible communication, and this legal benchmark has been used in the past all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada. The compelling public interest angle that had Donovan involved in the first place was that there were allegations of violent, physical, and sexual assault without consent involving a well-known public figure employed by the CBC, our national broadcaster. It was due diligence to request Gomeshi's side of the story and to report it accurately. The next move, then, would end up being an emailed letter and an attempt to reach Xi'an by phone. Unsuccessful by mobile, the email was responded to. Later that day, a friendly worded response was sent to Kevin, stating that Jian was being attacked by a former girlfriend in a smear campaign and that she was shopping her story around and had been rejected by most of the media she contacted. He went on to say his lawyers had advised him not to comment on the gossip and manufactured stories about his private life. He said he wanted to be clear. The allegations about lack of consent are categorically untrue. Unknown to Donovan, Jesse Brown had sent his own email to Q producer Julie Chrysler. This letter, sent to the CBC, ignited real concern. It included a statement that Jian's inappropriate behavior may have crossed over into the workplace. Well, I think what the focus was in June was to assure ourselves that there was nothing in the workplace um, and that we had nothing outside of the workplace. We'd, so we, we did the HR investigation. We didn't have a means to investigate, right? We're not the police. So if somebody makes an allegation about rumors about somebody's private sex life, 
does the employer automatically say, I want to start diving into your private life. I want to see everything that you have. I want to, um, because of allegations and rumors. It's out of my comfort zone, but it is in the realm of a person's private life. There was never, the words S&M were not used. It was characterized always as rough sex. Um, evidence of a personal, uh, an injury to a, to a woman. At that point, it moved out of the realm of sex entirely and into an issue of violence against women. This was an issue that could not just come out in the wash. If Giel's behavior was happening on the clock, it was up to the CBC to investigate those claims as part of keeping a safe workplace. Giel's lawyer, Neil Robanovich, responded that the email to Giel's employer was defamatory and wrongly suggested criminal conduct. If a story were to be published making these claims, they would certainly take steps to bring a defamation claim and seek compensation for all related damages. Donovan forwarded the response to his bosses at the Toronto Star with the subject line saying, we're into it now. Some of Jean's advisors were beginning to feel concern, wondering if perhaps there was more to Jean's story that he wasn't divulging. They could only help him if they knew all the details. But Jean was insistent that all sexual contact was consensual. He was not open to any suggestions that he would attend counseling or make some public admission that he's working out problems. He had a particular worry about public discussion because he was, along with hosting his popular radio show, also managing a young, talented female singer named Lights, whose career was still developing, and he did not want any descriptions of kinky bedroom preferences to be associated with her. His crisis team of publicists and lawyers were questioning him, as it's always better to know what's coming down the pipes so you're prepared. One team member recalled that Xi'an paced around the room moving his arms animatedly as he detailed some of the sexual scenarios that he had been involved in. He tried to explain how alleged bruising was possible in consensual relationships and that many of the women recorded videos of themselves freely in provocative positions and sent them to him through email or text messages. He described a seriously racy sex life, but determined it to be completely normal. In Kevin Donovan's book, Secret Life, he tells of one witness to this event saying that Jean appeared to almost become aroused relating the details of rough sex. His voice rising and providing more detail than necessary, they claimed he seemed to get off retelling the stories and bragged of his enormous experience with women, claiming that since university, he likely had sexual experiences with almost 1,500 women. That may sound fabricated, but considering that Jean was in a popular musical group right out of university and then onto broadcasting in the arts on a prominent platform and his connections with a lot of popular artists. Also, Jean is attractive and well-spoken, 
and his male feminist stance would only garner more enamor from starstruck ladies, especially the young ones. From my limited experience working along with people in the music industry and the way that I have seen some females literally throw themselves at far less established or attractive people, I do not doubt his claims. The doubt comes when we talk about consent and how it's established. There are a lot of ladies coming forward at this point in Kevin Donovan and Jesse Brown's investigation. And they are from all over the country. And their claims all have commonalities. This made even his own team do a double take. Kevin Donovan was not happy that Jesse Brown had sent his own email the same time Kevin had. The wording in Jesse's communication implied that there was urgency to respond when the reality was that the Toronto Star had not committed to printing a story. Not long after, Kevin Donovan and his wife were seated with Gian at an event put on by the Toronto Film Festival. During a private conversation during the meal, Gian insisted that Kevin was on a ghost chase and that the accusations had no basis. At the end of the meal, Kevin reiterated that he would continue to investigate the claims and made it clear that the story would continue to be in focus. This visibly shook Gian. What he didn't know, however, was that one week previously, Jesse Brown had parted ways with the Toronto Star as an independent journalist. And in their final talks, it was determined that they would not move forward on the story because too much was unverifiable. Jesse went back to working on his Canada Land podcast and became focused on another monster case that would keep his attention for the foreseeable future. But Gian's state was becoming more fragile. He had been diagnosed with general anxiety disorder and he was under tremendous stress. Then, a few weeks after the Toronto Film Festival dinner, Gian's father passed away. This was a brutal hit for Gian. He was close to his father, and this would be an emotionally taxing time, not in service of him getting his life under control. Then, on October 20th of 2014, Jesse uploaded his podcast, the one detailing how he was about to release that monster story that had been hidden and was a huge revelation that would be more than embarrassing for certain parties. So, as you may recall, Gian took that as a battle cry and went back to the CBC top brass and the alarm bells were off again. The Toronto Star had no plans to move ahead because their position had stalled. Gian, believing the inevitable reveal, went to his advisors where they compiled more than 100 videos and hundreds of text messages from Gian's phone. His lawyer, Tiffany Soucy collects the information and meets with two CBC staffers, Chuck Thompson, the Chief of Public Affairs, and Chris Boise, the Chief of CBC Radio. They had previously put full trust in Gian, and his lawyer was going to provide them evidence of consent to put their minds at ease before Kevin Donovan and Kevin Brown's story hit the media. 
she presented the video selfies and messages in an effort to demonstrate how during consensual sexual relations, there could be bruising, and the women were willing participants. In one particular video, a woman was shown with bruising due to a cracked rib during sex play. After that video, there continued to be others featuring the same girl who showed no animosity towards Jean. His lawyer felt that this clearly showed that the sexual play was consensual. Boyce and Thompson were shocked. Now, they were no longer comfortable with the situation at all. And Tiffany Susie did not expect that reaction. The two CBC executives left the meeting, and they immediately began discussing what the next move should be. They returned to the offices, and they informed Executive VP Heather Conway of what they had seen. They told her everything did appear to be consensual. However, one young woman appeared to have suffered a broken rib. Conway immediately decided that Jean would be let go effective that moment. Gomeshi was called in for a meeting. He was advised that they could not have an employee that was violent to women on their staff. Shortly after his dismissal, Jean released his Facebook statement, where he admitted that he'd been fired and was not leaving on his own account. He claimed he did participate in rough sex and that it was always consensual, even though some may find it offensive. And finally, he claimed that an ex-lover was spreading the untrue accounts to his employer as a means to shame or ruin him. that Gian had come forward, the previously unreleasable story that the Toronto Star was sitting on became the top item that that paper was working on that Sunday. Gian had opened the floodgates. The temperature gauge at that point was that most Canadians were appalled that Gian's private sex life would be faced with such intolerance. The public broadcaster was criticized for not supporting the alternative sexual preferences and they felt they were not in line with Canadians' liberal sensibilities. Gian had also led his public post with the fact that he's still reeling from the death of his father. People could not make sense of it. Yet when something feels weird, it's because it is weird. In time, the CBC ordered the Rubin Report to look into the issue of harassment in their workplace. It concluded that directly or indirectly, the CBC condoned Gian's behavior. Gomeshi's team of advisors and only real supporters beyond direct family began to dwindle one by one. Rocket Promotions announced they would no longer be representing Gian. His rep company, Navigator, released a statement responding to the reports, claiming that due to the circumstances, they would no longer be working with Xi'an either. Jack Ross, Xi'an's agent from back in his busking days, also quietly dropped Xi'an's name from his client list on his website. Lawyer Chris Taylor ended ties with Gomeshi, and in a final kick to the stomach, Xi'an's artist, Lights, backed away from a previous statement claiming she supported him. She then issued a statement that said they had parted ways and she was wishing everyone well dealing with the unfortunate situation. The end result was 
that these people had all believed that Jean had been truthful with them and was being attacked by an ex-girlfriend. Now the cracks were showing and they all had to step away. Jean retreated to avoid the media and regroup. He took Haven at a cottage provided by Canadian entertainment mogul Jeffrey Latimer. The investigation had only begun about a week after Jean's lawyer had shown the videos and messages to Jean's employer. The chief of police had stated they could not begin an investigation until someone came forward to file a complaint. Fortunately, actress and Navy captain Lucy Decotier came forward and filed a complaint as well as agreed to have her identity known and agreed to do media interviews. This inspired Laura Linda Redgrave to come forward with her own story and she filed her complaint with the authorities. At the time, she preferred not to have her identity known but later would file for a release after trials to have the publication ban on her identity removed. But in the early stages, Jean had been referred to defense attorney Marie Heinen, who had a high profile list of clients and a reputation as a prize fighter. She was going to be the one thing that Jean decided to do that was going to work for him and not against him. This leads us back to the trial, and we have covered that extensively. So what of it all? The question looms. Why did these women return to a relationship where they were sexually assaulted, having given no consent to being struck or choked? Because he's charming, because he's famous, because they find him so attractive? Or is it the belief that they felt infatuated and continue to see him in spite of his treatment, even possibly believing he may change. Remember, this is not the same as most domestic violence accounts. They were not involved in a partnership that way. But still, it is sexual assault to engage in a violent act while in sexual contact. I think we can understand what happened in court That was a damn shame, because no doubt there were instances where they were assaulted. But their credibility was shot, because they continued to see him, and even flirt with him, in attempts to seduce him. One complainant, if you recall, even had him to her private residence and had sexual contact with him again. And what of their personal situations? Lucy it was told in court, did not date much. And another of the complainants was going through a separation from her husband. And many of the ladies that Kevin Donovan spoke with were quite young and appeared small and fragile. So it could be speculated that Jean was prowling for weak females that he could control physically or mentally. I'm certain that Jean is exploring all of these possibilities with his therapist. And to be quite honest, I hope he is pulling it together. Gianco Meshi 
has been a valuable part of the horizon in the music scene and intelligent broadcasting in Canada. I get no pleasure in watching him destroyed as we dance around him on fire like the wicker man. In fact, a year after his acquittal, Gian created his own podcast called The Ideation Project, and it was compelling and insightful. Gian Komeshi has a talent that I would be sorry to see discarded. However, I can't dismiss my strong feelings for the victims. Their pain is real, and I hope that they are getting the care that they need to be able to trust again and not to fear abuse at every turn. I believe them. And I think the courts did too. But applying the law doesn't have 50 shades of grey. In the end, it's all crappy. Nobody really won or gained anything from the experience. Gian and his accusers all suffered public disgrace. And it was an all-around shame. If there was a winner, it was Marie Heinen. She was accused of being against women after the trial and called out as a kind of traitor because as a woman, she didn't support the victim's claims. I didn't see it that way at all. She appeared more to set the example for women. Have conviction and be strong. It's not about being a woman. It's about making everyone play the game fairly. Don't have blanket allegiances to anyone based on their gender and don't expect others to. Align yourself with the truth and virtuosity. That is your power. Because when you play fair, you don't find yourself in these types of scenarios. When you handle yourself accordingly, you will never have to worry about your secrets being revealed or flattening the negative or having your head screwed in psychological warfare. They all were playing head games with each other and that turned into a grand waste of time for themselves and the courts. I am not on a side. I think the whole thing is tragic. To tie yourself up in philosophical discourse about consent and post-assault conduct is useful. But in the end, protect your head. That's where most of the damage happens. say you portrayed them? Some women say uh, you portrayed them? I respect their right to say it. Uh, I don't respect uh, their opinion or agree with it. Uh, I know who I am. Uh, I know what my beliefs are. There's no question in my mind. And I don't feel the need to have to justify myself. Do you think the same would have been said about a male lawyer? Well, I don't things think... Things were being said about you? Uh, I don't think the same thing is said about a male lawyer or when, more importantly, males disagree with each other or on, are on opposite sides of the things. You're not viewed as a person who betrays your gender. You're viewed as people who disagree. So when they say, as some said, they use that old <laughs> phrase, there's a special place in hell for women who don't help women. Oh, well, I know what my role is on the justice system. Uh, and to characterize it in that way, that you are against women, is a fundamental misconception. 
of what we do in the justice system. I mean, female judges uh, adjudicate all sorts of cases, including sexual assault cases. Uh, they are not traitors to the gender when they acquit. Uh, and they are not supporters of the gender when they convict. They are doing their job, as am I.